analysis and reaction. Here is NL News Director Shane Woodford on 610 AM. Good morning and welcome to the Woodford Show. Nice looking day shaping up here in Camelot. It's a little cold out there. Uh, a little snow overnight, but blue skies, uh, sunshine, none of the warmth though, I assume. Uh, <laughs> uh, pleasure to be joined in the studio by Camelot's Mayor Ken Christian for our weekly chat about all things Camelot's politics. Good morning, Ken. How are you? Very well, thank you. Good. Uh, listen, uh, before we get to some of the political stuff, uh, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is we had the year-end summary on the overdose deaths, and I know that that's a, that's a subject that is very important to you. Uh, and for people who don't know, you have a background with interior health, so uh, not only as mayor of Kamloops, but you do have a professional background that kind of dives a little bit into this area. But uh, 48 overdose deaths in Kamloops last year, up from 38 the year previous. Uh, we've done a lot of stuff on this front, but obviously something is missing or something's at a wonk out there. Just a, a sense of where the city is or what it needs to do on that front? Yeah, well, you know, it's devastating in a word. Uh, I mean, uh, this kind of devastation and loss of life is unprecedented in Kamloops. This is now the leading cause of death in, in certain age categories. And uh, I've asked staff to look into uh, the place of death, uh, the time of death in terms of, you know, day of the week, week of the month, uh, trying to see if there are some trends so that we could, uh, you know, work with social agencies to just, uh, you know, be on guard uh, even more more than we already are in, in terms of this. Uh, it seems now that uh, males between the age of about 24 and 40 uh, are dying with uh, unprecedented numbers and they're often dying in homes or in, in uh, uh, hotels, motels, and uh, that kind of uh, thing is, is just unacceptable. The person years of life loss is, is just incredible from this. And what bothers me is that if this was any other cause, if this had been you know some kind of train crash or had some kind of intersection that was causing people to die, we would have fixed it long ago. And and uh, it just keeps droning on in Kamloops. And, uh, you know, from my perspective, it's unacceptable. I've uh, spoken with the mayor of Prince George, and I intend to speak to the mayor of Kelowna about uh, uh, opioid antagonist therapy. They have started that down in Kelowna, and I'm wondering if that's the kind of thing we need to look at in Kamloops and Prince George. And also hydromorphone uh, therapy, and, and whether or not we need to take a page out of some of the European countries and say, okay, look, you know, we're not winning the war on drugs and opioids are killing us. And so we need to change the paradigm. And that's what I was going to ask you. I mean, a lot of talk over the years about the Portugal model, but one of the interesting things from the, the chief coroner and some other of the health experts uh, in sort of summering up the, the last year that was in overdose deaths was raising the issue of decriminalization. And apparently a report is coming on that front. Uh, your thoughts there? You know, I, I think ultimately that's the answer. Uh, you know, we're going to see how that's working with cannabis. But uh, right now we have people that are uh, so addicted that, uh, you know, they're causing us a whole other sequence of, of social ills, uh, crimes of opportunity, prostitution, a lot of vandalism, a lot of those kinds of things that we are spending inordinate amounts of money to combat, and yet maybe we need to look deeper at the root cause here and, and see if there's a better way. Okay. Um, last uh, yesterday in council, uh, one of the more interesting stories is uh, you guys have generally taken an approach where we're going to say yes to cannabis stores. There's been, uh, as of yesterday, I believe 13, but there's supposed to be 14. You finally said no to one uh, proposal at 685 Trunk Hill Road. Um, your thoughts on, on sort of what transpired there? I, I know there was a division of votes. You found yourself on one side of the equation. Yeah, uh, but uh, council uh, spoke uh, yesterday, and, and I think the general feeling was that this was an incompatible land use 
use in that library square area. Uh, and uh, the uh, LMO, uh, the Métis Society, uh, with their uh, center that they have there and the kind of programming that they had uh, operating out of, out of that, uh, you know, represented themselves very well yesterday. And, and uh, they had a number of speakers talk about the, uh, you know, or, temptation and and the fact that the uh, uh, programs that they offer wouldn't be uh, necessarily compatible with having a cannabis retail there so the majority of uh, council uh, felt that way and so that one was denied is there i mean i know that it has to be a distance away from each other they got to be a distance away from schools i don't think there's anything hard and fast about youth services facilities or daycares or that kind of thing should there be well that's a question that uh, some councillors were asking yesterday and and uh, you know this uh, bylaw was made by the previous council so you know there's been a significant change and whether or not there's an appetite to revisit the bylaw and include you know some of those other kinds of uh, you know softer social uh, agencies you know, is another thing. You know, I think we have to kind of uh, wait and see what the landscape actually looks like once all of these stores get open. Right now, they've been approved, but there is only one operating. So, you know, we need to see what that looks like down the road, and and we need to continue to see, uh, you know, this uh, normalization of cannabis in, in our society. And this is something that hasn't happened in the past. So we we need to wait for this. Um, one of the other sort of big weather-related things, as we know, it's been an unusually mild winter until at least about a week or two ago and we had this cold snap. Uh, it went really, really cold and of course then the frost sinks into the ground and we've had some significant water main breaks here and there in the city. Uh, I don't suppose there's much you can do about that. It just is what it is. But your thoughts on on, on sort of what the city crews have been running around dealing with over the last few days? Yeah, uh, Greg Whiteman came to uh, council yesterday and gave us an update on uh, the weekend uh, and uh, in particular the Glenfair break and the Greenstone break. Uh, those were 50 years old cast iron pipes uh, that, uh, you know, suffered, I think, probably because of uh, the quick drop in temperature and uh, the fact that there's some ground movement and uh, that when that happens, it, it uh, shows off your weaknesses. And uh, I went out there with the CAO on Saturday and it was brutal. And kudos to those crews. Uh, you know, I said it to Greg yesterday and it's worth repeating that, uh, you know, they really have a passion for what they do and they weren't going to let this beat them and uh, right to a person they were out there in just raw raw temperatures and wind chills and they were chipping away literally at frozen ground trying to get down seven feet and put in shoring and then crawl down into that shoring get vac trucks in there to dry it out and and then start a repair and then uh, you know testing it to see that it works and then uh, gently backfilling these things and then road repair after that so this is uh, tough work in the best of times these were not the best of times so kudos to uh, the city of camelop civic operations crew that was uh, just a, an outstanding piece of work does it speak to uh, i mean uh, there's the project horse on, on uh, west victoria i mean the things we don't think about in terms of pipes and infrastructure under our feet we tend to look at the things we can see uh, but is, is this kind of speak to that stuff that you've got to do where, where money just has to flow to deal with some of this stuff? Well, exactly. The uh, You know, it speaks to this whole uh, investment that we're making in asset management. And, you know, as bad as these breaks were, uh, they weren't in, uh, you know, critical areas. We had one uh, winter ago on Lawrence Street, uh, you know, affecting our sewer system that was in a critical area 
Victoria and this West Victoria piece is really what we would call a pinch point within our lineal uh, uh, infrastructure. And, you know, when you have old pipes in a real critical point, you can have half the town go down and that uh, becomes really quite devastating. So utility disruption is a uh, another thing that we really need to be on guard for as a municipality and we need to be prepared for. And I think, uh, you know, right through from our uh, ESS and our uh, emergency operations system all the way through to uh, the men and women on the ground that are doing actual repairs, you know, we're prepared to do what we need to, but I think we have to, as a council, start to invest in some upgrades. Uh, last question before we run out of time. Uh, provincial budget next week. Uh, anything you're looking for from a city perspective there or no? Well, you know, we have, uh, you know, a number of asks out in front of government uh, right now. Uh, you know, things like uh, uh, extra money for uh, infrastructure, uh, overpasses to deal with the railways, uh, looking for some money for, uh, you know, the Stuart Wood project. Ultimately, we'll be looking for some money for a performing arts center if we can get the, that sorted out. We, uh, you know, have a, a, a number of other smaller projects on the list. So uh, I'll be interested to uh, hear what the government says. I'm very curious about our share of the cannabis revenue. Uh, that needs to be sorted out. So uh, we're looking at that. And I also want to uh, hear about the gaming fund split because uh, it's my understanding they intend to include First Nations in that. So I want to know how that might affect the municipality as well. Is there any movement on the cannabis front? As my understanding is there still hasn't been a cost-splitting ratio hammered out between the province and the Union of BC municipalities. And that's correct. Right now it's it was uh, 100% for the feds. Uh, they took 25 and gave 75% to the province and said, you guys figure it out, and they haven't yet. So, you know, we have real costs that are mounting, and the City of Camel's taxpayers are accepting that burden right now, but we want uh, to be, uh, uh, you know, compensated for that. Perfect. Ken, always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Thank you. That's Camelot's Mayor Ken Christian. We'll take a quick break on the Woodford Show. On the other side, a new deal for the Hospital Employees Union. We'll talk to Jennifer Whiteside. Local News Now. Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. You're listening to Shane Woodford on Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning and welcome back to the Woodford Show. Real pleasure to be joined on the phone by the Hospital Employees Union Secretary of Business Manager, Jennifer Whiteside. Good morning, Jennifer. How are you? Uh, good morning. I'm well, thanks. Excellent. So, um, labor peace. Uh, tell me about the deal you guys recently struck. Well, after um, many weeks of, uh, of bargaining and many, many more months of preparation uh, by, by us and our, and our members across the province, we reached a, a tentative deal that uh, we, we ratified. Um, this week with uh, the employer, and that deal covers 44,000 um, people who work in our healthcare system, doing everything from cleaning our hospitals to um, caring for patients at the bedside to taking blood to working in the offices everywhere. Our members are everywhere. 89% vote uh, in favor of ratification. Uh, that's a pretty healthy number. Happy with that? Uh, I'd say that that... that we're happy with that. That's a, obviously a much higher number than we've seen in, in, in previous rounds. And I, I think that uh, that reflects uh, the confidence of our members in, uh, in some of the real progress that we made in this round. Now, as I understand it, it does meet the government's uh, collective bargaining mandate of uh, 2% in each of the three years. Is that more or less in line with what you got? Yep, yep, no, absolutely. Uh, the general wage increase uh, for our members will, is two, will be 2% in, uh, in each year of the agreement, and that's consistent with uh, uh, the mandate set by, by government. 
Um, but there were other aspects to this, uh, to this agreement that are very important and that will not only improve working conditions for our members, but frankly will build a better health care system for everybody. Yeah, and one of those, uh, the HEU has long uh, been beating the drum on the uh, the contracting outside, uh, contracting out protections were stripped by the former government, I think, way back in 2002. Uh, tell me a little bit about that and how important that is, and then B, now that that's restored, what happens next? Well, it's, um, that is really fundamental, and we've, uh, we've made huge strides on, um, uh, on eliminating uh, uh, contracting out in the future under this collective agreement. Um, but we, uh, we also have a process now uh, with uh, government and with employers to look at work that was contracted out as a result of Bill 29 after 2002 and to look at whether, um, whether uh, and, and under what conditions that work might, uh, might come back into the direct control of the health authorities. And we think that's a very important step because from our perspective, the contracting out agenda of the previous government and of healthcare employers really has resulted in a very fragmented healthcare system where you have fundamentally important work in our healthcare system, like cleaning our hospitals, our operating rooms, clinics, um, who aren't actually employed by the health authorities. Uh, now, this is not the case in the interior, but down here in the south, um, you have, uh, in some cases, uh, you know, nurses working on a unit who have to call into a call center to get an instruction given to a cleaner to go clean a particular area. And we don't think that makes sense in terms of the fundamental role cleaners in particular play with respect to infection control in our hospitals. So uh, this this agreement and the, the, the kinds of discussions that we'll be having with government going forward will, um, will allow us not only to um, look at how to sort of better uh, protect our members, but also how we actually uh, make health care better and safer for British Columbians. How do you go about, now that you've got it restored, how do you go about reeling in some of the contracting out? Because I imagine deals have been struck with, uh, with this organization and that organization to do this or that. Um, how, do you, how do you reel those services back in? Well, I think, you know, now that we have the ratification um, done, we will be turning our minds to those discussions and be starting to, to work through what, what is a very complicated uh, uh, scenario, uh, no question about it, uh, really as a result of an entire generation, really 16 years of um, a real sort of undermining of our healthcare system by, uh, by all of this, uh, this contracting out and privatization. So it's not going to be um, easy by, by any stretch, but we're very much looking forward to productive discussions with employers and government on this, on this issue. One of the ones that comes to mind, and I, I can't remember the specifics of it, but I believe that there was a contracting out of laundry services and hospitals uh, that went, was it to Alberta or somewhere? But it really raised the ire of the unions of the day. Is that in, sort of included among the services you're looking to get back or no? I mean, really, the, the, the agreement that we have in our collective agreement is to look at all of the, all of the work that was, that was contracted out. And laundry was one of the first casualties of that, um, of that whole era. I mean, we used to run the, the most efficient laundry services really in the country and they were pub we had a laundry uh, 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 service down here that was um, completely public where the public owned the infrastructure we owned all of the capital equipment the workers had decent jobs and they provided a really good service i mean now our laundry is done hospital laundry is done sort of all over the place and in the interior really that was the one of the last casualties of, of privatization, where um, uh, when the when the laundry services in the Interior Health Authority were uh, contracted out, privatized to uh, to, to Ecotex, and um, we 
uh, I mean, from our perspective, I, I, um, we absolutely want to have discussions about those jobs as well because that, uh, that, would, that hit interior communities really hard, and I think it hit the healthcare system in the interior very hard. All right. And one of the other uh, interesting aspects of the deal is uh, uh, the reestablishment of a provincial organization to focus on health and safety in the healthcare sector. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, I can't say how important uh, how important this is. You know, healthcare is. I, I know that folks don't necessarily um, think of healthcare being a really dangerous place to work, but um, healthcare work sites are very, very uh, they're very risky places for the people who provide the the care and the services, uh, whether that's in acute care or in long term care. But in long term care, we have an absolute crisis in this province. We have injury rates uh, that are four times the provincial average. Uh, and our members, care aides who provide direct care to frail seniors in that in that setting, are the most highly injured workers. Um, so that is uh, a situation that is completely unacceptable. Our members should not have to get up every morning going to work just accepting that they are likely going to be hit or bit or scratched or have their hair pulled or be assaulted or be verbally uh, verbally assaulted in the in the course of their day you know our members work in very complex um, environments with patients and residents who have very complex um, health conditions and uh, we know we have a chronic understaffing problems chronic workload problems so this um, investment that government is making eight and a half million dollars um, so that we can look at how to mount a provincial response, a system-wide response to the crisis in injury rates and, uh, and, and all of the many problems with occupational health and safety in this, in this sector is absolutely um, fundamental, uh, really fundamental. I think it, that, that is going to be a benefit not only for our members but for all healthcare workers. And again, really, the safer the working conditions for the people who are providing the care, the better the caring conditions for the people who are receiving the care. How do you make it? How do you make it safer? Is it a matter of uh, putting more staff on the floor? Is it a matter of changing how they do things? How do you improve that environment? Because that that in itself sounds like a fairly complex problem. Well, it is very complex, and it's why we need a um, it's why we need a much more sophisticated approach than the one that we've been currently taking. And we need a, uh, an approach that sort of will 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 address issues and pull everybody together in the in the system um, to to work on that problem because healthcare is so integrated. I mean, everybody you have you know teams that are working very closely together. Um, you have departments that are relying on on each other, and it, it in part it is a question of staffing. There's no question you have to have you know enough staff on on hand to, to be working safely. But it's also about work processes. Um, it's about uh, design. It's about ergonomics. It's um, it, it's about many many things. Health and safety is um, extraordinarily complicated, and I really learned that working with our internal uh, OHS experts when we were bargaining some of some of this language. So it will require um, uh, a considerable amount of expertise, both from our side, from the employer side, from government side, to all work together uh, to shift the dial. Okay, uh, Jennifer, you guys have got uh, labor peace, a three-year deal. You've achieved some important things within that deal. Uh, now that you've achieved that, uh, what happens next for the union as far as addressing some of the things on your on your to-do list? Well, we start right away this morning. In fact, we um, are are working on. Uh, 
going to be working today on some issues uh, related to how we um, start to build um, some more stability in our long-term care sector, which is um, part of which is uh, very highly privatized, part of which is in the in the health authority-owned and operated sector. But of course, it's one long-term care sector with one uh, one workforce. We have some very significant recruitment and retention issues across that whole uh, that whole workforce. Um, so we will be. We're starting work uh, uh, today to uh, to look, develop the uh, the enforcement strategies around the, the new the new contract we've negotiated, but also to look at um, what are what are the issues we need to be addressing across the whole the whole system in order to bring um, stability back to what is a very uh, fragmented and in some areas, particularly long term care, a quite a broken system. Jennifer, uh, lots of important stuff going on. Congratulations on getting a deal, and thanks for taking a few minutes out of your day this morning to talk to us. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Lovely to talk to you. Have a good day. And that was the Hospital Employees Union's Jennifer Whiteside in a new three-year deal and some of the steps the union is now going to take that they've achieved labour peace. We'll take a quick break to the bottom of the hour. On the other side, we'll get some throne speech reaction from the BC Business Council. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. Digging deeper into the day's top stories. You're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Lovely day here in Kamloops. Glad to be joined on the phone by the President and Chief Executive Officer of the BC Business Council, Greg Davignon. Greg, good morning. Welcome. Good morning, Shane. Uh, listen, uh, Throne Speech yesterday, I know you were uh, watching with interest, uh, I gather, on the other end of it. Uh, there was some stuff in there that uh, you would have liked to have heard uh, from your perspective what was missing yesterday. Well, the Throne Speech uh, lays out a vision for the government's agenda going forward, and we were disappointed in that it's eerily silent on anything with respect to do to the economy of British Columbia. Um, the concern is that we've had a long-run chain for decades now of economic growth and prosperity. In fact, BC has led North America two of the last three years in terms of economic growth. But uh, a lot of that, we fear, is coming to an end. There's lots of data and early warning signs around us having a slowing economy, but uh, the potential for a recession, depending upon what happens globally with a lot of uncertainty happening in China and the U.S. and trade. And the fact that we're not paying attention to that is a real concern because it shows up not tomorrow or the next day, but in about 6 to 24 months. And uh, we need economic growth. Uh, in order to pay for the things that the government wants to pursue, including child care, indigenous reconciliation, other issues we all support. But it shows up in negative ways if we're not paying attention to the economy at the kitchen table of British Columbians. I note uh, the LNG Canada facility was, uh, was mentioned in the throne speech. Uh, other than that, or including that, what would you like to have heard? What is it out there in the economy that you want the government to be paying attention to or putting on the table? Well, you raised LNG Canada, which is a great example. And, um, you know, we really congratulate the government for supporting the regulatory tax and other measures necessary for them to make a $40 billion decision to invest in British Columbia. But the foundation of that is what we're talking about. They created regulatory certainty over the next 30 years for a company to invest in BC. They aligned municipal, federal, and provincial governments to make sure that the regulations in, in place to run the business and to invest and, and construct the business would make sense. But we're not doing that in the rest of the economy. In fact, over the last six years, it didn't just start 18 months ago, we've seen $6 billion of additional cost in taxes and fees added to business in British Columbia of all sizes. 
and that doesn't include regulations and other processes that have really created uncertainty and cost and complexity in BC. And we're seeing investment capital throughout the province starting to leave and move into other jurisdictions like the United States. And uh, we're also starting to see for the first time negative uh, migration. So we're seeing people leave British Columbia to go to other parts of the country. And that's odd given the fact that we've got this huge labor demand and one of the most low unemployment rates in the country. So we've got a problem that's looming in front of us and we're not paying enough attention to it. I guess one of the things, that, and this is a gut reaction for me on, on, the, on the net negative uh, movement of people out, out of BC, rather as opposed to going in. But uh, one of the big issues, of course, uh, you get revenue from the housing market, uh, which has been a big driver the last few years. That is going away. We've got money laundering concerns there. We've got affordability issues, especially there. And I think the affordability issue is key, Greg. A lot of people can't live and work in Vancouver. They're, they're just refusing to do it. And other people who are, are the industry is going out to find to say, we want you to come in and work for our company here. Uh, they're looking at the markets down there and saying, no, I, I'm not doing that. So how do we balance spurring the economy, but also tackling these affordability issues that are really key? Well, one of the key elements, and we've done quite a bit of work on this, Shane, is around productivity, and I think it's one of those really misunderstood issues. Productivity isn't about working harder, it's about working smarter. And BC and Canada specifically are woefully behind the rest of the world. We're 26% less productive for every hour a person works compared to the US, and 23% less than France. And what it means is, um, for every hour you work, if you can create more value, that adds productivity, and that's one of the key drivers in wages. So the f- problem with the discussion on affordability, it's always been around the cost of housing, but you also need to focus on how do we increase the wages that individuals in British Columbia are paying, and it's not by um, uh, essentially driving out investment and driving out uh, uncertainty through regulation. It's about how do we have a unified municipal, provincial, and federal strategy and vision for our economy to take advantage of the assets and operations and people and talent that we have in this province. And there's none of that in the throne speech. And frankly, we haven't seen much of it from the federal government either. Uh, one of the other things that, that is lurking out there is, uh, of course, taxes. You mentioned that. We've got a bunch of new ones. I'm sure you're, you're not very fond of the employer's health tax, among some others. Um, the but biggest th- tax increase in British Columbia in the last five years. Yeah, but one of the other ones that's been lurking out there for a long time that I think is more or less under the radar is the PST. The, the HST debate uh, was fairly toxic, and it's kind of uh, made it politically untenable to go back there. But the PST, I think, is badly in need of some serious revisions and some serious updating. Would you agree, and how would we do that yeah and i think um, we need to look at tax generally um there's going to be more challenges and more pressure on governments to have revenue to be able to support the quality of life and services that we want you just had a guest on about uh settlements with nurses who are vital to the healthcare system but that adds obviously cost to the system going forward um a good example is my family's been in british columbia since the 1800s my grandfather had a hardware business that went up into the interior including kamloops and the pst came in and the same time that he was running his business in 1949. And uh, in those days, uh, ironically, at the same time, 
Princess Elizabeth had yet to be the queen and is now the longest-serving monarch. Yet we're still using the same tax model that we did before she was the queen and when my grandfather was running a business who would have turned 120 the other day. And we're just not looking at a modernized, digital economy, innovative economy tax structure going forward. If we did, that would, again, attract investment, enable businesses to grow, become more productive, and for people to have higher wages connected to the international marketplace. So a comprehensive, honest, thoughtful conversation around not just replacing the PST, but looking at the entire tax system and how we can lift people up that are vulnerable, but also encourage people to invest and grow their business. On the regulatory side, how do you streamline there? I mean, there's a lot of problems that obviously focuses on the natural resources side about the difficulty in in wading through a sea of bureaucracy, uh, not to mention, uh, you know, political opposition, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, but how do you how do you tackle all this regulatory stuff to make businesses uh, more attracted to our province? Well, Canada has become very focused and very efficient on process and less efficient and less concerned about outcome. And so it now can take up to 13 years to get a mine approved, where lots of other jurisdictions in the world with similar environmental protections are less than three. Um, In the forest sector, you're seeing huge efficiencies of investment going into the southeast of of the U.S., in part because of fiber supply, but also you can conceive, design, build, permit, uh, a uh, plant in Georgia, as an example, faster than you can get a regulatory response on whether you can harvest lumber in British Columbia. So those kinds of speed-to-market issues need to be addressed, and we're not even talking about it at the provincial or federal level. In fact, we're adding more complexity through things like Bill C-69 Environmental Review in Canada or the most recent review in British Columbia. So we're really concerned we're going the opposite direction of the rest of the world, and we're going to pay a price for it in the medium term, and that's why we're concerned about where growth is going to come from. But I guess the key answer to your question is how do we focus on the outcomes we want and use smart technology and smart regulation to get there as opposed to worry about the process that we go through in order to get some kind of a decision. And what we're finding in BC is even once you've got a decision, rarely do you actually have certainty to be able to go forward and we're seeing that in pipelines and a variety of other projects on the land base. But even if I'm a business owner and trying to set up a retail establishment, I can wait months and months and months for a permit to be able to build out my restaurant as an example. Uh, last question to you, Greg. If you had a few minutes to bend uh, Premier John Horgan's ear and uh, and have a say in, in, in what next steps would be, what would you tell him? I think the Premier needs to focus attention and bring a variety of people to bear, not just business, but a variety of people to say, look, what does British Columbia look like in 10 and 15 years? How do we create the regulatory and tax model necessary to really build on our strengths. We're closest to the biggest growing and fastest growing markets in the world. We have incredible diversified populations. We have an indigenous community that wants to participate in the economy, but we're actually putting barriers in the way of leveraging the assets that we have in terms of people, natural resources, energy, and innovation, instead of uh, purposely trying to advance those opportunities going forward. So, um, I know the Premier gets it, but we've got to be more concerted, and we need to bring municipalities along because one of the other issues is we don't have a unified economic vision for the province or for Canada. The federal government does one thing, the province does another, municipalities do a third, and business and investors and people that are trying to seek employment for the long term are getting caught in the middle. Greg, I know you're busy this morning, and you took some time out to chat with me. Really appreciate that. 
Thanks so much, Shane. Appreciate your time. That's Greg Davignon. He's the President and Chief Executive Officer of the BC Business Council, talking about his reaction to the throne speech and some things there that uh, obviously he thinks is missing. A uh, quick break on the Woodford Show, and we'll talk on the other side to Councillor Michael Riley about whether or not the car is still king in Kamloops. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. The voice of your community. You're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Pleasure to join in the program by uh, one of the newer counselors this year, Mike O'Reilly. Mike, how are you? Good, thanks, Shane. How are you? Uh, first off, your wardrobe, uh, bulky winter jacket and shorts. Well, Shane, it's kind of a state of mind. Right now, we're in the, we're in your studio here, but I'm on a beach in Hawaii. Oh. So, no, but in our store, it gets quite hot when you're working right. back there. It's just a little more comfortable to work yeah, in. So. Just, it was an interesting seeing you walk in in shorts. That's yeah, all I'm well, saying. You know, that's okay. I get odder looks than that. So. All right, man. Uh, you, you had a question. Basically, the question was, is the car king in Kamloops? Uh, you did some digging. Some city staff helped you do some digging. It came up with some numbers from ICBC. Uh, if I remember correctly, about 70 6,000 cars in Kamloops, so one car for pretty much every man, woman, and child in the city. Um, and then the question was, is uh, what do we do as far as switching to, you know, your hybrids, your electrics, your transits, that kind of thing. So with the data in mind, what, what, where's your head got now as far as step number two, as, as far as figuring out this cars versus transit versus hybrid and electric stuff? Yeah, well, you know, what got, what got me thinking about this was, you know, we've had about 50 hours worth of orientation with staff since we started. Yeah. And the common message that came back was how complex our uh, water, sewer, and drainage infrastructure is in Kamloops, uh, the most complex in Canada, and second only to San Francisco in all of North America. So then I started thinking about transportation. Um, And, you know, looking at the numbers, what, I mean, the number of 76,000 is quite shocking of how many cars there are, but the fact that it's it's doubling the pace of population growth in Kamloops um, is also another another thing to look at. Um, and and why the title was that was is the car still king is is it is a, the biggest piece of transportation in Kamloops, um, and I think we're always going to need vehicles. But how do we shift people into an electric or hybrid? Right. Um, you know, when you're looking at a total of 57 just 57 electric vehicles in Kamloops and the hybrid vehicles are 490 in the entire city is how do we switch away from the combustible engine? I, I, I just don't believe we are totally going to get away from a single occupancy vehicle in Kamloops. Um, so we need to, to find ways to do that. Um, you know, there are other cities in British Columbia that, that have funds set up that are, that are um, done through uh, a separate society that basically issue grants to people that want to buy electric cars. Right. Um, and you know, I, I don't think, I don't know anyone and you probably don't know anyone that that says you know what i want to harm the environment i i want <laughs> i want to get the most emissions possible there's a lot of people that want to make the switch um but but it is costly to do right um and and so how can we get people to make that jump so in that factor because uh, I, I found it interesting that the number of cars because the other weird factor is the number of transit ridership is growing in the city so it's this interesting thing where yeah the car people are still buying cars a lot but there also is more and more people jumping on transit so that's an interesting dichotomy you know, it, it is. Uh, at the same time, if you look at um, 
some of the pressures that are being put on the schools, for example, on the high schools, is is the population is the age of the population is changing somewhat, and the people that were in you know grade eight, grade nine a few years ago now are grade twelve and you know maybe in university, and they're buying their own vehicles right. and are starting to be more independent, and uh, and that's just you know natural evolution of, of how people go. But when you had somebody a house before had two vehicles for a mother and a father, and they transported their three kids around, mm. now there's four or five vehicles in a driveway and and you know that's that's nothing against any one person that's just the way our society and the way camels has been built um but it's how do we get more people out of it and how do we get those electric and hybrid vehicles going how does the transit work because obviously one of the main i mean in other cities your abbotsfords your langley's your vancouver's places like that whatever as the city grows uh people still need to move around and transit's a huge component of that obviously it differs from city to city for need and the ability and all that kind of stuff but eventually camels is going to have to seriously tackle transit we've done a fairly good job so far but how do we how do we grow in the next bunch of years here yeah well you know I, I think that's two two pieces one is I don't there hasn't been uh, one offer from the provincial government that Camelot City Council has turned down for new transit hours mm. and as you know it is a partnership between the city and the province um, and Camelot has always said yes and you know we have another one on our table right now that I would expect that we will probably say yes to uh, but the other piece and you're seeing it all around downtown on the North Shore is densification yes. so that we're not causing that urban sprawl which is which is making it harder for uh, ridership as a bus is going all the way out to Rayleigh for example or to Dallas and it's coming back with eight or ten people um, you know we we need to to work on that and getting people living in the places where they're going to work and play instead of having to do that long commute that said though Kamloops by design is kind of scattered right you got you know Juniper Ridge you got Aberdeen up the hill you got Rayleigh as you mentioned you got West Side way over here the North Shore and while densification will certainly happen in the urban mm-hmm. center you've still got all of these far-flung neighborhoods and there's probably more coming yeah so I mean if, if you look at some of the newer neighborhoods and and uh, Aberdeen is a great example because it's 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 growing um, there is a commercial node that is actually in the plan to be there so the people in Aberdeen don't have to really leave Aberdeen if they need to go get a jug of milk mm. um, and you know we could look at that as an example in say Bachelor Heights um, but it is a it's a fine line and and what would concern me is if we uh, say a commercial property has to be built here and it never gets built um, and the one that comes to mind that's that um, would be Sun Rivers they have their piece of property that's been sitting there right at the you know center of their district that they say we want this to be commercial but there's not that uptake so it's it's finding that sweet spot um, but I, I do believe some commercial nodes can happen in in multiple communities and you look at Dallas as a great example they now have a little grocery store yeah. people don't have to make that trip into Valley View for Sahali and those types of things help reduce the amount of transportation that people need to take uh, the other thing too is if you're gonna go hybrid and especially electric you need an infrastructure to support that vehicle uh, not only in the actual city but because of where Camelot's is situated on the highways around it yeah. uh, I know that there's a brand new EV charging stations put into uh, one of the highway stops along the Coquihalla mm-hmm. uh, so there is some infrastructure there but there needs to be more and it's more in the city the TCC has some I can't think of any other electric charging spots around off the top of my head but how important is that and what do we do there what does council do there yeah I mean that's something that, that we need to work with developers on um, but specifically when we have the provincial government saying that 100% of electric vehicles are going to are going to be electric vehicles sold in British Columbia, um, that, that's something that we will need assistance with from them. Yeah. Um, you know, that's a that's a you know, what's going to end up being a core piece of infra- infrastructure, much as water and sewer is. So are 
electric charging stations. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I've even seen down in the States where they're, where they're actually converting uh, gas stations over to electric charging stations. And they're not so much a place just to fill up your car. They're now a place for, for somebody to fill up on, you know, fresh fruits or groceries and that type of thing while they're charging their car. Um, so it's, it, things are changing in, in transportation, as you know, and uh, we just need to, uh, to adapt to that. That just reminds me of a gas station I saw in Vermont once. It was Jack's Gun and Gas Shop. Well, I, you know, Shane, I don't know if that's something we'll go after, but if you need to bring that forward, you do what you need to do. No, man. That was, that was a jaw dropper for me at the time. Um, okay, so how do we, how does, what does council do to facilitate this? I mean, you mentioned you prefer the carrot rather than the stick. Uh, obviously, it's not going to happen overnight. This is a long term deal. It's going to happen over a number of years. So uh, give me an idea of what council can do over the next little while to begin going down this path. I mean, there, there's lots of different steps, but I think the first one is working on our active transportation plan um, and uh, and accelerating that program. Right now, it's it's set about 25 years to do the major uh, pedestrian bike infrastructure. And I mean, that's that's just basics of sidewalks in mm -hmm. certain areas that right. there should be. Um, and, and that should, I mean, that's on our supplemental item list right now. Um, and uh, and I think that'll need to happen. And then it's going to be working with uh, Mr. Glenn Cheatham's group and uh, Marvin Kwiatkowski's group is how do we a shape the developments to allow electric vehicles, but B, how do we get more people into electric or hybrid? Um, and again, I, it, the the vehicle isn't going away. It's how do we get, in, in Camel specifically, right. just based on our topography, is how do we work with people to get them into hybrids? And looking how other cities are doing in BC when there are funds set up that are dispersed to people, and we know we know grants work. We've we've seen people take them take uh, uh, those opportunities up, and uh, and looking at that and, and finding a best case scenario. And you know, if you were to look at the city to spend possibly forty thousand dollars on an electric vehicle, for example, if we were to give eight five thousand dollar grants to get people out, if that's the, if that's the bump that people need to go from combustible to electric. That might be worth it. I mean, that's something the council will have to decide on, but that could be an option that's brought forward. Right. Um, and hybrid and hybrid the same boat. What, what kind of vehicle do you own? Uh, I own a Silverado. Okay. Yeah. So what stands between you and going electric or hybrid? Uh, a truck. Yeah, a truck. Um, need a truck we, we pick our, up a lot of supplies from Costco right. and other businesses in town. Yeah. Um, but on the flip side, I have a RAV4, uh, four-cylinder or six-cylinder. But what's interesting is the gas mileage is actually very comparable, my Silverado to the RAV4, which you wouldn't think. Right. Except the Silverado isn't working hard going up the hills. The, the RAV4, it's working hard. It's at 3,500 RPM. The truck's just kind of putting along at 2,000 <laughs> RPM, so it's very comparable, which was also an eye-opener. But again, it goes back to that topography that mm. we cannot get away from in Canvas. Yeah. How do we work and adapt to that? Yeah, no kidding. Uh, I drove a Ford Fusion on a trip to San Francisco last year. Uh, I saw was, the photos. Yeah, I was eye-opening because <laughs> we did. Uh, we spent $45 on gas, and we drove 800 kilometers up and down the California coast. So yep. that certainly made us think about our next car purchase yep. for sure. So Definitely. Uh, and, and I mean, it's one thing, the price, but those greenhouse gases that are being emitted, yeah. right, that, that aren't being emitted when you go to, to those types of vehicles. And, and that is going to be key uh, for, for everybody in North America, quite frankly. Okay, awesome. Mike, thanks for coming in. Good discussion, man. Thanks for having me, Shane. And that was Mike O'Reilly, Campbell City Councillor, talking about whether the car is king in this city. And that brings to an end today's Woodford Show. We'll see you again right here on Radio NL, same time tomorrow. 1400 Clearwater, 107.1 Shuswap from CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. This is Radio NL 610 AM, local news now.